You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Hosea chapter 10, and uh, it actually works as a, a breaking point, uh, not breaking us, but as a, a break point between uh, the uh, chapters 11 through the end here. This seems to be the, the somewhat culmination of this lawsuit that Hosea started in chapter 4. And so if you'll remember the overview of Hosea, the first three chapters are uh, Hosea acting as this sign to the people of God by taking uh, a prostitute as a wife showing forth the Lord's love to this wayward people. And then chapters 4 through 10 are Hosea unleashing this lawsuit against the people who have so violently violated God's covenant standards and going after the worship of idols that cannot save. And so chapter 10 acts as a bit of a culmination of all of that. And as we've been going through it, it is is difficult. Hosea seems to be saying many of the same things, but expanding and changing, bringing in new metaphors, helping the people of Israel to see their sin in any and every way possible. Hosea does not want them to be able to continue down their path without knowing the dangers that they're facing. And so we come to chapter 10. We'll be reading starting at verse 1 till the end. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf at Beth-Avon. Its peoples mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish, like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorns and thistles shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued, shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah. When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them. They are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own ways and in the multitude of your warriors, 
Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise against your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Well, again, this is another one of these texts in Hosea that uh, seems to really have nothing in the sense of, of grace or mercy in it. Hosea is just merely at this point recounting to the people what the Lord has said to them. And it is a bleak and a grim message. Uh, yet in the midst of it, uh, really almost you could say the heart of it, there's this command that they sow for themselves righteousness, that they break up the fallow ground. But again, the Lord then turns upon them and says, instead of doing the things that you should have been doing, you instead were plowing iniquity, reaping injustice, and eating the fruit of lies. Instead of doing what they should have been doing, uh, Israel has been uh, running headlong down this path of evil and wickedness. And so as we look at this uh, chapter 10, again, as Hosea is focused upon the nation of Israel, we see in the first two verses, he speaks of a people that are no longer blessed. And in verses 3 through 8, a people that are no longer ruled. And in verses 9 through 15, a people who know only evil. Again, it is a grim picture here. People who are no longer blessed. And in the first two verses, it speaks of a time when, when Israel was indeed blessed. They're spoken of as a luxuriant vine that is yielding its fruit. Uh, it could, this, the beginning of this verse could be translated, Israel was a luxuriant vine that yielded its fruits. That it could be here that Hosea is speaking in the past tense. So regardless, the, the flow of this is going to show that that will regardless, that will be the case that Israel will no longer be this luxuriant vine. That it was a people who was fruitful and prosperous. But Hosea has been showing that they've been using this in order to further their sin. And again, the more I, I read through Hosea, the more I feel that Hosea could be standing upon our doorsteps and saying much of the same thing. I mean, you can think about the ways in which uh, the, the, the world has been blessed, how prosper it is in places, and what have, what, have, what have we, what have our countries, what have they done with the blessings that the Lord has provided? I mean, they have, they have found just new ways to sin. And that the church is not immune to this. We have found new ways to sin. God has so blessed us. And then the people take those many blessings and deface and defame the God who gives them. And I mean, this is the point where reading this text, you really should be asking that question, what is God to do with his people? He blesses his people and they take those blessings and use them to sin. He provides them gold that he graciously gives them that even their own country can't produce. They take that gold and what do they do with it? Do they adorn a temple to worship him? No, they make a golden calf to bow down and to worship to. And yet in this, the Lord has been continually trying to draw his people back. He's been rebuking them. He's been warning them. And they continue not to listen to them. 
And he was the one who saved them. We read this at the beginning of the the, the, uh, Ten Commandments. I am the Lord who saved you. And yet this is a people who trusts in Baal, who worships this false god. And you really think, what is God going to do with them? Hosea does not leave us uh, without an answer. He is going to punish his people. But again, it's it's easy to to read this and to either look at Israel as the problem or to look at the world and say, that's the problem. And Hosea, I think if he were standing here today, would say, yes, (laughs) Israel is a problem. The world is a problem. But as we're we're looking through this text, we have to remember that here Hosea is speaking to the covenant people. And think about our own lives for a moment. How much has God abundantly blessed you? I mean, think about the, the country that we live in. Do we have the freedom to worship? Do we have the freedom to evangelize others? Do we have the freedom to talk about our faith and not risk repercussions in jail? Do we have the word of God available for us in a myriad of translations? Do we have a wealth of Christian material to encourage us in our faith? When you think about all of this, how much do we take for granted? And how much can we see in Israel this mirror of taking God's many blessings and not utilizing them? And so he continues that Israel was this once luxurious vine producing this fruit, but the more he grew, the more he improved really in sinning. He improved his country. He improved his pillars. He built altars, not to the Lord, but to Baal. So the only thing Israel has been improving at is new ways to sin. And the Lord says that their their heart is false. That their heart is false. And here I think the idea is he's contrasting it with what their heart should be. It should be faithful and steadfast like the heart of God. And yet their heart is false. The the, the inner core of their being is false. Is in a sense the exact opposite of, of truth and of who God is. And again, these are his people. His people are characterized by a false heart. And he says, they must now bear their guilt, and the Lord will break down their pillars and destroy their altars. He will destroy their altars and their pillars, these these things that they worship. In many ways, God here is is highlighting to Israel that he is the, the divine warrior. He is the one who conquers. Again, when we think of the Exodus account, there's this wonderful, vivid, vivid in imagery of the Lord going to battle against the gods of Egypt. Though we know they're they're fake, many of the people in Egypt did not believe that. They believed that they were real, and God time and time again shows that he is the one who defeats them. And here, as the people continue to worship this false god through these various ways, God is going to show his people that he will be victorious over Baal. Though Baal is is, is a non-entity, he's nothing. God will destroy these altars and show his people. God will have a conquest. He he will conquer this land all over again. He will conquer his people all over again. And reading through this, seeing the ways in which Israel has been entrusted with so much and, and squandered all of it, 
It reminds me of that parable that Jesus told of the talents. You remember this parable in Matthew 25. There's this uh, master who has these servants, and he gives them each a talent. It's a, a measurement of money, and he gives various amounts to them. He leaves the country. He comes back and says, well, how did you do with what I entrusted to you? And I'm working from memory here, but the first three show that they have invested it wisely and return it back to him with more. And the last one hides it under his pillow and says, well, you're a harsh man. I at least didn't lose any of it. And the, the master has this man uh, tossed out of his presence. And it's, it's indicative here of that they have been entrusted with something and, they ha- and this man had misused this had not returned an investment upon it. And again, you think back to the ways in which Israel was blessed. And instead of, instead of using all of what they had in the worship and service of the Lord, they squandered it. And again, I think we just come back to think of what we've been blessed with. What have we been entrusted with? And what are we doing about it? I mean, think of the, the children here. Think about all that you have been entrusted with, with parents who teach you and raise you and catechize you and instruct you. I know many of us who are parents may wish that we had been raised that way. And yet, you will be held accountable for what you've been given. And we all will be held accountable for all that we have been given, as Jesus says in that parable. And so we move on. And so Israel, they are no longer blessed. They, as Hosea has been saying, they will have all of this prosperity stripped from them as they're taken from the land. But also Israel will be a people that is no longer ruled. The end of this chapter has God's pronouncement that the king of Israel will die very soon. In verse 15 at the end there. That there is a a time coming when the monarchy of Israel will die and there will be no other king to follow him. And Hosea has been dealing with the situation in Israel where it's full of assassinations, these power plays of false princes and evil rulers, that this makes up the, the ruling class. And so they, they are, 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 the Lord is, is speaking to them how their king is going to eventually fall. And here we have them, Israel seeming to respond to the Lord, saying, we have no king because we do not fear the Lord. That Israel seems to be responding here in a way that seems to be flippant. They say, we have no king. Our king is taken away because we do not fear the Lord. But then you'll note that they follow on this with, and a king, what could he do for us? It almost sounds flippant. It almost sounds like maybe a teenage me would say about something. Eh, What does it matter? What's a king? Yes, Lord, we disobeyed you. You've taken our king from us. But really, is it that big of a deal? And I think we have to realize, though, that in this time, what a a king did. A king was the the central point of power. A king was the one who who led the armies into battle, who uh, raised the armies up. He was the one who was in control of the country and and really kept it together. And to think of a a country without a king, what, what sort of government would be there to rule over this people? And so to not have a king would 
be incredibly disastrous for the people. And if you don't believe me, go back and read the book of Judges, which is constantly, its refrain is that even the people of Israel fall into this absolute wickedness because they don't have a king. And so here they, they don't have a king because they don't fear the Lord. But then they just seem to move on. They don't care. There's this connection between being kingless and a lack of trust. But then, again, I think it exposes Israel's heart here. What could he do for us? And so the Lord responds in verses 4 through 8. Verse 4, to paraphrase, or, or my wooden translation, they are idiots. The Lord says, they utter mere words with empty oaths, they make covenants. They're just babblers. They're just, just spewing forth words that seem to have no meaning to them. They are thoughtless in what they're doing. And so my judgment will spring up on them like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. This picture here of, of judgment coming up from the ground to entangle and ensnare them, that poisonous weeds are all around them. And that God is going to take away, he's going to take away their idol, that which they worship, this golden calf, which he calls their glory. The glory will be taken away, those who rejoice over its glory. They, people, they do not fear the Lord, yet look at what he says of them. They tremble, uh, they tremble at the calf, this golden calf being taken away. The people mourn over it, as so do the idolatrous priests. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for this calf. They do not fear the Lord, yet they are shaken to their core that this golden calf has been taken away from them. The people are mourning. There's tears in their eyes. They are deeply saddened that this golden cow is no longer there in their midst. They are not mourning for righteousness they seem to be mourning the fact that their sin was taken away from them. Their opportunity to sin was taken away, and that grieves them more than it grieves, more than they are grieved by the way they treat their God. And so God removes this. In verse 6, it's almost comical, by the way, this thing. The way in which the, 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 the writer or the way in which Hosea is speaking, not even calling this golden calf, he says this thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great king. And again, the, the, the picture here is that they've, the, the Assyrians have come in and ransacked this temple and now they're carrying off this golden calf that can't fight for itself, can't do anything for itself, can't speak for itself, can't defend the people, and it's taken away as this tribute. And I like the way it phrases this, a tribute to the, the great king. So there's this mighty king of Assyria who rules over all, who likely has this grand palace with all of these wonderful things in it, and this little golden calf from this tribal people out in the middle of Israel will act as, I don't know, maybe a footstool or a coffee table for him. And it's almost that it's just ridiculing that this is their hope, something which will adorn the palace 
of the great king, this puny idol versus this great man. And so this will go. And this is Israel's trust. And you can think about the way in which it says here that they will be put to shame. Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Likely here, they're, 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 they're ashamed of the fact that their idol is so powerless to do anything for them. Israel has put all of its trust, all of its effort, indeed all of its life has been focused into this golden calf that now becomes a small trophy for a great king. Israel, in a sense, is actually just memorializing its shame. It'll just stand in memory of this people's stupidity. And again, I think the question has to come. How did God's covenant people end up in this state? How did God's covenant people end up in this state? But really, if we think about it, we could ask that same question. How did the church in the West end up where it is? I think it all stems from a decline in fearing the Lord. We see that here. Proverbs begins this long book on what it means to be wise by saying the beginning of wisdom is fearing the Lord. And when we look at at Christianity in the West, it's certainly easy to, to, to view liberalism or liberalizing of Christianity as the villain. You know, we see this, and I think Hosea would confirm this. There certainly is in some Christian circles a a movement from God's clear words to idols of cultural relevance. It's all too easy to see uh, whole churches and denominations more concerned with changing sexual ethics and, and appearing to be on the right side of history or being focused on climate change or any number of these things that, that actually become idols to them. And it's easy to, to look at that and say, yes, Lord, that must be the problem. When I think what we see really the problem is among those who believe God's word and yet fail to live by it. And I think that's what Hosea is driving at here. Again, think of Hosea's position. He is standing in the midst of a pagan nation that pretends it's Christian. To be anachronistic here. He stands in the midst of a pagan nation that pretends to be in covenant with God. Yet they busy themselves every day trying to paganize themselves even more. That's where Hosea stands. And so as he continues, as the Lord continues in verses 7 and 8, Samaria's king shall perish. Again, this reminder that their king will fall. And as the Lord seems to be trying to put them into their place, their king will perish like a twig on the face of the waters. He is this not just a mere man, but he is this fragile twig floating on this waterway. And Israel's high places will be destroyed. And people will be taken from the land. Thorns and thistles will grow up amongst them because there will be nobody there to tend them any longer. And the scene of of judgment here when they call upon the mountains and the hills to, to crush them and kill them, when this battle comes, when this time of exile comes, that is such a, a serious thing that they would wish for death in the midst of it. 
And Jesus uses this same imagery for speaking of the, the fall of Jerusalem in his day and the final judgment of the Lord when it is to come for those who are not in Christ. And so then we come to the end of the section, 9 through 15, to a people who know only evil. In verse 9, it picks up again with uh, this history of Israel, that the state that Israel's in is actually not a new thing. Verse 9 has, from the days of Gibeah, again, bringing up this time in Israel's history when they acted in such a depraved and evil way. This is just when they had just come into the promised land. They acted in this, this such a depraved way in, in the book of Judges. And then this is there they have continued. This has been a long, continuous line over hundreds of years. And the Lord said, when I please, I will discipline them. This is, again, another reoccurring theme in Hosea that God has been graciously deferring punishment in hopes that his people would repent. And yet now he is disciplining them because after this time of, of allowing things to continue has not changed them as the prophet's cries have fallen on deaf ears, so he will bring this exile to them in order that they may know, <laughs> they may know who is in charge ultimately of the world. In verses 11 through 13, it's this, this call for what Israel should have been doing all along. They're pictured here as a calf pulling through the ground, uh, one of these, losing my train of thought here, but one of those plows through the ground in order to break it up so that seeds could be placed down and that produce could grow from it. But Israel, Ephraim, was a trained calf that loved to thresh, but I spared her fair neck. He did not put a yoke upon her, but, but treated her almost as a domesticated animal, as a friend. But yet I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah and Jacob must plow and harrow for himself. And again, this undercurrent that Hosea, while targeting the northern tribe, constantly has Judah there as an undercurrent. Because it is interesting to see that Hosea, while 14 chapters, is actually quite small when you put it up against uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, which all of these are prophets who are coming to the southern kingdom. And so what they should have been doing is they should have been plowing the ground, planting good seed, and seeing good fruit, righteousness, and steadfast love. For it is, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. It's an interesting way in which here it's saying you should be sowing righteousness so that the Lord will be raining down righteousness upon you. And again, I, I think what, what is happening here is it's this twofold that they are to be pursuing holiness. They are to be doing the things that the Lord has commanded them to do. But then the Lord will rain down righteousness upon them so that they will know that they're not trying to earn God's love but be obedient to what he has commanded. And so we have this situation here where Israel, instead of doing what they should be doing, is instead plowing iniquity, reaping injustice, and eating the fruit of lies. And so judgment is going to come upon them. 
John Calvin famously said that our hearts are idle factories. You can think of little factories continuing to produce these little golden calves or things for us to worship. And that seems to be here, this picture of Israel, that they plow iniquity, they reap injustice, and now they are eating the, the, the produce of what they have. Instead of producing peace, patience, kindness, etc., they're just eating lies. They, they planted sin. They harvest injustice, and they seem to be dining on satanic lies. And the question keeps coming up, why is Israel in this state? In the second half of verse 13, because, the Lord says, because you have trusted in your own ways and in the multitude of your warriors. Israel has trusted itself instead of trusting in the sure words of the Lord. Like the idea of following your own heart is terrible advice. Jeremiah says your heart is deceitful above all things. That's why we have the scriptures in order to correct us. And yet Israel trusts in, in his own ways, in his own thoughts, in his own schemes, and his own plans. And again, you think about, look at where it's gotten him. You could almost just say, you could summarize the book of Hosea as simply uh, trusting and really following after your own heart. Israel trusts in its own ways. It trusts in its army. And the Lord here says, this is the reason you're in this state, because you trust in yourself and instead of me. Therefore, you trust in your own plans. You trust in your own warriors. Fine. In a sense, verse 14 seems to be, therefore, we'll put that to the test. We will bring an army against you. We'll see how, we'll see how well this works. And it says that basically they're going to be destroyed. And again, jumping forward to the New Testament, Jesus seems to be thinking similar lines when he speaks about the ways in which uh, this, this parable is man, two men who built their houses on two different foundations. It's such a short parable, but so vivid to think of the man who built his house on stone and the man who built his house on sand. Israel here is really pictured as this, this oncoming onslaught of this army to attack them that they're hiding behind this nice and fancy, well-built sandcastle. That this will ultimately save them. But if they really truly knew how things looked, they would see that this is such a poor defense compared to the Lord. And he gives them a, a picture of something that has already happened within their lifetime. At Shalman, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. We don't have any information about what this battle is, but the people in Hosea's time would have. This would have been something that would be vivid, that they would remember. It's something as horrible as mothers with their children being killed. Like this must have been some very graphic and, and, and wicked and evil battle that would have been in, in the consciousness of the people. And you can think about the ways in which the Lord is talking here. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that day? And we can think about current events today of, of countries that are, are, are facing injustice that, uh, you know, think of places like Myanmar where things have been completely overturned with a coup. Or, or think of the ways in which Afghanistan, the state of Afghanistan now, 
Like it's in our, our consciousness. We, we know that these places are war-torn and going through difficult times. And they're places none of us would, would want to move. Indeed, people want to flee from them because of the state that they're in. And you can imagine Hosea saying here, just as it is there, so it'll be here. That God's judgment is coming. So God is, is giving them a, a real historical event. This is, not, uh, this is not some hypothetical that may happen. He's saying this really did happen. You remember this. You've seen these things. If you had television, it was broadcast on the BBC for you. You've seen firsthand what has happened here and what has happened there is going to happen here. Thus it shall be done to you because of your great evil. Another way this, this logic works out, you, you, you have produced sin because you trust in your own ways. Therefore, war will be upon you because of your great evil. And then Hosea closes, at dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. It sounds like here at the very end, it's, it's, you can imagine this big setup of all of these dominoes out in front. That judgment is that close. Each of those dominoes represents judgment in some form or fashion that is going to fall hard like a swift hammer blow upon Israel. And there at the front is the king of Israel. And he will be cut off and he will fall. And it seems as if you push that over. Suddenly there's this cascade of all of these dominoes, all of this judgment that is going to be unfurled against Israel. The king will be cut off, meaning he will face the, the sanctions of the covenant. And then all of this will now fall like a, a great tsunami upon Israel. I mean, it's tough to hear this. It's tough also to think about the ways in which Israel stubbornly refuses to listen. So as we, we, we come to the end here of chapter 10. I have to say, it's not been the easiest to preach, to listen to, to, to hear these things. And thinking about this and thinking about the way Hosea sounds and the words that he says, you know, I'm I, I just thinking of the question, who would you rather go to the pub with, Hosea or Jesus? Right? Angry Hosea or kindly Jesus. Right? Jesus, we're shown throughout the Gospels, is the, one who, is the one who helps the poor, who heals the sick, who dined with the wicked so that he would show forth God's love to them. That Jesus? <laughs> or would we rather have Hosea, the one who announces judgments and covenant curses around every corner? As Fox reminds me, there seems to be a word that is Hosea's favorite word to call the people of God here. He says, you are spiritual adulterers. Hosea says, you don't know any better. You worship false idols that cannot and will not save you. You're blind, dumb, stubborn, and refusing to listen will bring about your utter destruction at the hands of God, the real God, the one that you've abandoned, that Hosea. Which one? Which one do you want to go to the pub with? But I think we have to remember some things. 
As we turn the pages into the New Testament, as God here is thundering against his people, so in the New Testament, Jesus is God. We can't pit the New Testament as if it's only love against an Old Testament that's only wrath. Because there's plenty of judgment in the New Testament. There's plenty of grace and mercy in the Old Testament. We have to continue to remember that the picture that started Hosea was the first three chapters of Hosea going after Gomer, someone who didn't deserve his love, yet he continued to go after her and to redeem her. And speaking of God as a loving husband to his wayward bride is this beautiful picture of God's love, loving and unlovable people. Hosea is tough, but it's also gracious. The Lord is still continuing to speak. And you think about this, when when he promises mercy and redemption, Hosea has shown us really, truly the depravity of these people. When we think of the ways in which God knows our own depravity, all we have to do is read through Hosea to say, how in the world can God love these people? Because again, remember, in Hosea, these are the good guys. These are the Lord's people. And so when Paul says Jesus came into this world to save sinners, Hosea shows that to be true. But I think you also have to see the ways in which what Hosea says Jesus alludes to, I think, in many ways. Throughout the sermon, these parables just spring to my mind of the, you know, the, the wise and the foolish builder. Uh, in this, you, you build uh, upon the rock, upon Jesus Christ, and you are sustained. Or you build upon sand, and when you face the judgment, it all comes collapsing down around you. Right? This is what Israel is facing right now. Where is their trust? What have they built upon? And Jesus is really saying, where you place your trust determines your final destination. Heaven or hell. Or there's the parable of the sower. As the gospel spreads, does it take root and grow in your life? Do you hear it or do you turn away from it? Notice, too, how how you respond matters. Jesus says some respond in joy, most respond in apathy. What was happening in the the time in Hosea? The the word, the, the message was going forth, and yet most responded in apathy. But Jesus says, some by the Holy Spirit respond and joyfully they produce fruits of righteousness. And Jesus is saying in that parable, how you respond to his words has eternal consequences. Because only those who are producing fruit are those who, who have trusted in Jesus are those who will be saved. The rest will be carted off and cast away. Right, And also the parable of the talents. Jesus says here that you've been entrusted by God and that God demands a result on his investment. How are you using the blessings that God is giving to you? Think about the way in which he distributes those talents. That one man at least thought he was in his master's good graces, but he wasn't. Are we growing in our faith or do we take it and abuse God's blessing? Jesus is saying how you respond to God has eternal consequences. Those of us who use God's blessings for the advancement of the kingdom, that's what we're to be doing, whether it's in our own life, the life of the church or the world. Like we'll show forth a, a mighty return, but there are plenty who are squandering their gifts. And Jesus says they do so towards eternal punishment. 
in the end, I think this Jesus can sound like a harsh guy. He sounds a lot like Hosea. And indeed, Jesus is the, the greater prophet. And Jesus would have no problem coming to earth to announce this to the Israelites at that time. Yet, I do think we have to be reminded at the close here that Jesus knows the depth of our depravity. Jesus knows our sins. And yet, throughout Hosea, God has shown a love to his people despite that. I mean, Hosea has laid it all bare for us. And yet, God has a love for them. Sow for yourselves righteousness. For it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. This beautiful picture here at the end to trust in God, produce fruits in righteousness, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and run the race that is set before us. Because it's only that race that is guaranteed to end in victory. So let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K for more.